First Samuel chapter 25. Father, as we are now opening our Bibles, Lord, we ask that our hearts would be open this morning to what you would desire to speak to us as a congregation as well as as individuals. Lord, we know that you have given us your word to instruct us and to enlighten us, that it is application for our daily lives. And so, Lord, we pray today that you would just make your word come alive to us, that you would breathe life by your spirit into this passage and into our hearts, and that, Lord, you would give us the wherewithal and the strength to to put your word into practice. Lord, we give you this time today, in Jesus' name, amen. Looking at the Word of God as to how it would apply to our daily lives, as people who are desiring to just live rightly and to live for the Lord. And this morning, as we look at this particular passage, it's one that I think lends itself to that type of description, because it's a lengthy chapter. And we're going to go through each verse, almost every verse of this chapter. And really, it's a pivotal chapter in the life of David. It's one that could have ruined him and put him on the same plane as a Saul in the eyes of the people of Israel. And it's one where David learns a very, very valuable lesson. This chapter could be divided into six acts. It could be a six-act play. And that's kind of how we're going to look at it this morning. But I want to encourage you just from the onset to be attentive because it is long. There's a lot that we're going to cover. But I think as we would just open our hearts to the Lord, I think that he can speak to us. It reads like a play. And so we would look at, first of all, Act 1 as being verse 1, where we see the removal of a godly influence in the death of Samuel. Act 2 in verses 2 through 11, we see the response of a great graceless man. In Act 3, in verses 12 and 13, we see the response of a man whose pride has been wounded. And in Act 4, verses 14 through 31, we see the intervention of a gracious woman. In Act 5, verses 32 through 35, we see the response of a humbled man. And then in Act 6, verse 36 through the end of the chapter, we see the judgment of a righteous God. So that's how we're going to break it down today. We start with Act 1, verse 1, where we read this. Then Samuel died, and the Israelites gathered together and lamented for him and buried him at his home in Ramah. And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. If this were a movie and this was the opening scene, it would signal to us right away that this was going to be an intense movie. We would see a coffin and we would see a large crowd of people gathered together just weeping and crying and lamenting. That's the scene here. That's how this play, if you would, kind of opens up. And there's this just great intensity here. The people really didn't honor Samuel so much in his life. But he's definitely honored here in his death. This man who had served God from that time that he was just a little boy growing up in Eli's house. Now he passes on and his passing would have meant a major blow in the life of David because Samuel had been David's mentor. He had been his confidant, and what transpires here in this chapter might very well be connected to the death of Samuel and the effect that that had upon David. 
David was accountable to Samuel and he received counsel and direction from Samuel. And the prophet's death meant that this stabilizing influence in David's life had now been removed. Plus, it was Samuel and Jonathan who knew absolutely that it was God's will that David would be the next king. And now one of them was gone. Samuel having passed on and gone to be with the Lord. And this had to be a very discouraging time in the life of David. And it sort of sets the stage, I think, for what transpires in this next scene, in this next act that we read here in verse 2. It says, Now there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. And the man was very rich, and he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. And he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. And the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife was Abigail, and she was a woman of good understanding and beautiful appearance. But the man was harsh and evil in his doings, and he was of the house of Caleb. And when David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep, David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, go to Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall say to him who lives in prosperity, peace be to you and peace to your house and peace to all that you have. Now I've heard that you have shears and your shepherds were with us and we did not hurt them, nor was there anything missing from them all the while that that they were in Carmel. Ask your young men and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever comes to your hand and to your servants and to your son, David. And so David's young men came and they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in the name of David and waited. And then Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David and who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants nowadays who break away each one from his master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men that I do not know where they are from? Here in Act 2, we see here the response of a graceless man. We are introduced here to this very rich man by the name of Nabal. We get some insight into his richness in the sense that it says that he lived in Maon, but he had a business down in Carmel. And that was very unusual in those days, that people would live in one place and have a a business going in an entirely different city. It's not so common or uncommon in our day and age, but it was very, very uh, uncommon in their day. And and we read here of his riches that he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats And the Hebrew word for rich means heavy. And the idea is that this guy was loaded. I mean, he just had a lot. Now, there are four kinds of riches. There are riches in what you have. There are riches in what you do. There are riches in what you know. And there are riches in who you are. The richness of character Nabal was a very rich man, but he was only rich in what he had, which was the lowest kind of riches. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 23 that material riches can be a definite obstacle to the kingdom of God. Material riches can be a definite obstacle to a person entering into the kingdom of God. He said it's not impossible for a rich man to be godly or to enter the kingdom of God, but riches make walking with God harder because the tendency of people who have those type of things is to trust in themselves and rely upon their riches. It was Seneca who said a great fortune can result in great slavery. 
where a person becomes a slave to his stuff. If a rich man is to be a godly man, one of the key things that there must be in the heart of that rich man is generosity. Realizing that he has been blessed by God. God has blessed him, materially speaking, so that he can be a blessing to others. And that is something that those who are blessed in that way must understand. Because when generosity is lacking, selfishness, greediness, foolishness, and hard-heartedness are the result. We see the picture of it all the time at this time of the year. It's almost Christmas. And in the, the play or in the, the, the television program, the movie Scrooge, we see it. Here's this man who was blessed with great wealth. Yet he was a man who was selfish and greedy and he was cantankerous. He was a cantankerous old man. And Nabal had a similar disposition. His name means fool. That's what the name Nabal means. And the scriptures define a fool as a man who acts like there is no God. And that was Nabal. He went through his life not making, giving any recognition to God for what he had. He acted like God didn't exist. He lived for himself. He hoarded his riches. And furthermore, we're told in verse 3 that he was a harsh man. The word harsh means that he was stubborn and that he was belligerent. And we're also told that he was evil in his dealings, which means that he was dishonest. And so the picture that we get of this man Nabal is that he was a man who was greedy and demanding and deceptive. He was ruthless and he was a man who was very, very unfair. And as we look at Nabal's life, there's a lesson for us in this that riches don't guarantee happiness. That is a great misnomer in our culture today. People think if I was just rich, if I just won the lottery, if I just had a little bit more, then I would be happy. And it's such a deceptive ploy that has been entered into our culture and permeated every single aspect of it where people are living with that in mind and that's their goal. Howard Hughes who was one of the richest men who has ever lived in the United States, was also a very weird and paranoid individual. He lived in obscurity. He would hide out. He would go around in disguises. And before he died, he said this about himself, that he was the most miserable man on the face of the earth. He was the most miserable man who had ever lived. In 1923, at the Edgewater Beach Hotel in Chicago, Illinois, eight of the most powerful money magnets in the world gathered for a meeting. These eight men, if they combined their resources and their assets, controlled more money than the United States Treasury. In that group were such men as Charles Schwab, the president of a steel company. Richard Whitney was the president of the New York Stock Exchange. Arthur Cutton was a wheat speculator. Albert Fall was a presidential cabinet member and personally a very, very wealthy man. Jesse Livermore was one of the greatest investors on Wall Street in his generation. And Leon Frazier was the president of the International Bank of Settlements. And Ivan Kruger headed the largest monopoly in the United States at that time. It was quite an impressive group of people. But as you look at their lives and you consider how they ended, it's very, very alarming. Charles Schwab, he died penniless. Richard Whitney spent the rest of his life serving a sentence in a Sing Sing prison. Arthur Cutton, that great wheat speculator, became bankrupt. And Albert Fall was pardoned from a federal prison so that he might go home and die there at home. Leon Frazier, the president of that big international bank, he committed suicide. Jesse Livermore, he also committed suicide. So did Ivan Kruger. 
Seven of those eight great big money magnets had lives that were disasters before they left planet Earth. What mistake did they make? Thinking that what they had and what they controlled belonged to them. It's the same mistake that we see Nabal making here in this story. And you know what? You don't have to have riches to make this mistake. You see, the Bible says that all of us are stewards. That God has given to us certain things. That God has blessed every single one of us with talents and with certain things that He has placed in our care. And He desires that we would use those things for His glory. That we would use those things and advance the kingdom of God and bring glory to our Lord. Nabal doesn't do that. The problem begins here in verse 4 when we see he's shearing his sheep there in Carmel. This was harvest time for a sheep rancher. And because it was like harvest time, in ancient tradition, sheep shearing was a time of lavish hospitality toward others. It was traditionally a time of, of feasting and celebrating, and there was always enough to spare, especially to those who guarded and protected your flocks. You see, it was also a common practice in those times when soldiers were out on patrol or if they were stationed in a certain region that they would protect the shepherds and the flocks who were out in the fields in that region. Because one of the common occurrences, there were the Philistine invaders and also the Bedouins who were a great threat in that area. And they would often come in and they would steal sheep and they would kill shepherds. And so it became a common practice of the soldiers or commandos who would be out in that particular region that they would watch guard. And they would protect those shepherds out in that region. And it's exactly what David and his men have been doing for the shepherds who watched over Nabal's flocks. And then at shearing time, it was also the practice to repay those soldiers. Now, it wasn't required, but it was kind of expected. It's kind of like when you go out to a restaurant and you're expected. It's not required. They're not going to put you in jail or make you wash dishes, but you're expected to give the waiter a tip. And this was the same type of thing, that it was kind of had become an expected thing that you would give to those people those soldiers, you would give them a part of your spoils once you sheared the sheep. So David sends his men to Nabal seeking compensation, but Nabal responds in a very rude and arrogant way by basically saying, who's David? Who's David? Who is the son of Jesse? Now, everybody knew who David was there in Israel because of his great battles and his great military exploits. His fame had spread throughout the land, but Nabal's just being a jerk here when he says, I don't care about David. Who does he think he is anyway? And then he adds further insult by suggesting that David was just like any other rebellious servant who had ran away from his master, which was also something that people in Israel knew wasn't true about David. Well, this leads us to the next scene, Act 3, where we see a man whose pride is wounded. Verse 12. So David's young men turned on their heels and went back. And they came and they told David all these words. And then David said to his men, every man gird on his sword. And so every man girded on his sword. And David also girded on his sword. And about 400 men went with David and 200 stayed with the supplies. A man brought his boss home for dinner one night. It's the first time his boss had ever been in his home. And his boss was a very arrogant, 
boastful, obnoxious man. And through the whole course of the dinner and on into dessert as they were sitting in the living room, this man's little boy just looked at this man's boss, just stared at him through the whole night. And finally, the, the boss, getting a little uncomfortable, he, he, he said, son, why do you keep staring at me? He says, well, my daddy says that you're a self-made man. And the guy kind of, you know, stood up with his shoulders and he, he said, that's right. I am a self-made man. And the little boy looked at him and he said, well, why did you make yourself like that? (laughs) Well, David here has the opportunity. How is he going to act? Is he going to be a self-made man or is he going to be a God-made man? David initially responds here to this insulting response. Nabal says, Who is David? And David says, I'll show you who I am. I'll show you who I am. He doesn't have a clue who he's dealing with. It's kind of that macho male thing that David's going through here. It's like, you know, Clint Eastwood with his beady eyes saying, go ahead, make my day. Or it's Rocky, you know, in one of the Rocky sagas, you know, Rocky 16. And, you know, he's uh, there with, with Mr. T. And it's like, you know, come on, you want a piece of me? Bring it on. You know, that's what David, that's how he's responding here. You know, just totally, completely in the flesh. David says to his men, gird up, guys. Every man gird up his sword. If it was modern times, he'd say lock and load. You know, let's go. If it was a Western, he'd say, mount up, boys. We're going to go get this guy. And we see David's intent on his heart in verse 21. Notice it says, now David had said, surely in vain I have protected all that this fellow has in the wilderness so that nothing was missed of all that belongs to him. And he has repaid me evil for good. May God do so and and more also to the enemies of David if I leave one male of all who belong to him by morning light. David here is it's way overboard in his reaction. 400 men heading to the home of a shepherd rancher guy to do what? To massacre him. And every single male, every servant, every shepherd, every son, he's going to kill them all. David, his eyes are beaming red, blood red. Why? Why is he responding in this way? Because David's pride was wounded. And pride will always respond in the flesh. It always does. Our pride always responds in this way. It gets wounded and it's like we want to strike back. That's exactly what David is doing here. What's interesting to me is that with Saul, David was so patient. Time and time again, he lets Saul off the hook. He has the opportunity to kill him. We saw last week, yet he doesn't do it. But with this man, Nabal, this simple little insult, and David just goes ballistic. Why? Well, it could have been that David was just in a dire straits because of Samuel's death. It could have been that he just had great respect for the position that Saul held, and he didn't have any respect for this guy. I don't know the reason. I don't know why he's doing, but I know for sure that there's a lesson in this for us. This reminds us of our constant need to be on guard, because our flesh is always wanting to rear its ugly head. 
The flesh is always seeking to get the best of you and to get the best of me. In Romans chapter 6, Paul said this concerning the flesh. He said, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with Christ, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Paul says, your flesh has been crucified with Christ. It's been done away with, but the word there isn't annihilated. It doesn't mean that it's been removed, and you know that. Paul said in Galatians 5 that we wrestle with the flesh and the spirit. They war with one another. The word here, though, is katargeo in the Greek, and it means that the flesh has been rendered inactive. Now, here's the thing. It's been rendered inactive, but we can activate it. We can activate it when we respond to our flesh. The flesh is like a man who's tied up, who has no power in your life, but he can still talk. And he tries to get your attention and he tries to get you to respond and he tries to get you to do those old things again. And you can activate him, you can untie him if you listen to him. David here is listening to his flesh. We need to watch because Paul would continue to say, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lust and do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. The flesh wants to rear its ugly head. The, fre- the flesh wants to be untied. But, but David would say, know this, your flesh has been crucified with Christ. Reckon it to be so. And then present your members of your body as instruments to be used by God. Alan Redpath said this concerning this time in David's life. Does it not show beyond all possible doubt that I cannot stand against the enemy of my soul unless the Lord upholds me moment by moment. This story tells me that however long I may have been on the Christian path, however often I may have overcome one temptation or another, however many times I have defeated sin in one area, it can strike in another and crush me in a moment. This story reminds us that we can't live on the past victories. But we always need to be on guard because the Bible says to him who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. And David is at a place here where he's about to blow it big time. But here we see in the next act, act four, the intervention of a gracious woman. Verse 14. Now, one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, look, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master. And he reviled them. But the men were very good to us, and we were not hurt, nor did we miss anything as long as we accompanied them when we were in the fields. They were a wall to us, both by night and by day, a wall of protection. All the time that we were with them, keeping the sheep, now therefore know and consider what you will do. For harm is determined against our master and against all of his household, for he is such a scoundrel that one cannot speak to him. And then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves of bread and two skins of wine and five sheep already dressed and five sails of roasted grain and 100 clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and loaded them on donkeys. And she said to her servants, go on before me. See, I am coming after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. 
And so it was as she rode on the donkey that she went down under cover of a hill. And there were David and his men coming down toward her, and she met them. Skip to verse 23. Now when Abigail saw David, she dismounted quickly from the donkey and fell on her face before David and bowed down to the ground. And so she fell at his feet and said, On me, my Lord, on me let this iniquity be. And please let your maidservant speak in your your ears and hear the words of your maidservant. Please let not my Lord regard this scoundrel Nabal. For as his name is, so he is. Nabal is his name and folly is with him or he's a fool. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now, therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, since the Lord has held you back from coming to bloodshed, And from avenging yourself with your own hand. Now then let your enemies and those who seek harm from my Lord be as Nabal. And now this present which your maidservant has brought to my Lord. Let it be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your maidservant. For the Lord will certainly make my Lord an enduring house. Because my Lord fights the battles of the Lord. And evil is not found in you throughout your days. Yet a man has risen to pursue you and seek your life. Speaking of Saul. But the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the pocket of a sling. And it shall come to pass when the Lord has done for my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you ruler over Israel, that this will be no grief to you, nor offensive heart to my Lord, either that you have shed blood without cause or that my Lord has avenged himself. But when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your maidservant. We are first introduced to Abigail in verse 3 where we are told that she was a woman of good understanding and beautiful in appearance. The Bible gives Abigail great praise when it says that she was of beautiful appearance because the only other women who have this Hebrew phrase applied to them are Rachel in Genesis chapter 29 and Esther in Esther chapter 2. So Nabal's wife was both beautiful and wise in contrast to Nabal himself. Now, the question is this, how did a woman like this ever get matched up with a man like Nabal? The answer is probably pretty simple. In those days, the marriages were by arrangement. And so her father, probably seeing what a wealthy man that Nabal was, decided this would be a good guy for my daughter to marry. And she was given to him in marriage for that reason. And it was something that happened quite often. Women were sacrificed in that type of way, oftentimes to benefit their family that maybe was struggling, that they would marry him off to a rich man. But here's the thing. There's a lot of Abigails today who are in that place not because the marriage was arranged, but because they chose to be in that place. And it's remarkable how many Abigails get married to Nabals. God-fearing, tender-hearted, gentle women who are noble in their ideals become tied in an indissolvable union to men like this. It often starts, and those of you who are single, listen close. It often starts when a single sister starts to feel that the men at church are just not her type. 
or they just don't seem interested in her. But the problem is that she's getting attention from unsaved men, unbelievers at the office or where she works or at the college where she goes to school or at the gym where she works out. And she starts thinking, well, he's really nice. Maybe I can convert him. So she agrees to go out for coffee. She tells him that she's a Christian. She asks him, are you a Christian? And he says something like, yes, but I'm not a very good one. Will you pray for me? Or he says something like, yes, but she can tell that he really isn't. Or he says something like, no, but, you know, I'm kind of interested. And so she starts to think that she can bring him along. It's that, you know, Christian dating missionary type of thing that sometimes people fall into. I'll bring him to the Lord. And for every case where, you know, it it happens where the guy ends up or the girl ends up getting saved, and there have been a few, there's a thousand where it doesn't. And so often what ends up happening, because there's this compromise that is beginning to take place in that young lady's life, and that compromise is because the Bible says that light doesn't have any fellowship with darkness. And how can two walk together unless they be agreed? And all of a sudden there's this, this compromise that is taking place and she begins to walk in a path that, that is becoming a dark path. She's walking down that road and her flesh longs to be going down that road. And the, as Jesus said, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so often what happens is she ends up falling into sin or... The guy is on his best behavior and then they get married and it isn't long before the navel in him begins to come out and she's stuck and she's discouraged. And so those of you who are single, I want to encourage you today, don't lower your standard, but wait upon the Lord. Trust and believe that he has a perfect person in mind for you. Spend time with other brothers and sisters who are in the Lord in group settings. I commend the guys and gals in our college group because you always are hanging out together. And I think it's a great thing because it gives you an opportunity in that group setting to see what people are like. And to see their heart. And to see their walk. And to see if what they are saying on the outside you know, matches what is going on on the inside. And it's a great opportunity A great setting for you to develop and to see, you know, those relationships. I commend you guys in that. And I encourage others of you to make a point to get involved in those type of settings and be involved in that type of group. And so we see here, Abigail, she didn't have a choice, but you do. This great lady here who intercedes between David and Nabal. And when Abigail hears how her husband responded to David's request after months of benefiting from David's kindness and protection, she goes and she intervenes. And we're told in verses 18 through 20 that she made haste. She prepares this feast and she puts together quite a spread. 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five sheep already dressed, a hundred clusters of raisins. And the fact that Abigail was able to gather so much food so quickly shows how wealthy that Nabal was. And it also shows how ungenerous he was. I mean, all of this was right there, quick at his disposal. And yet it shows his greediness and not wanting to give any of it at all. Now, I wish we had time to really, really look at this. Because I think in this, what Abigail does, there's some great things for us to learn from. 
Great example of how to diffuse a volatile situation. I want to just quickly make a few comments for you to make note of and study on your own. First of all, in verse 18, as I noted, she made haste. It was an urgent situation and she acted in timely fashion. It is great to be able to pray and wait upon the Lord for certain decisions and how to handle certain situations. But sometimes there is no time for that. Sometimes you just need to nip things in the bud right away. And you just have to step out and trust and believe that God is leading in those times. That's what she does. Secondly, in verse 23, we see that she humbles herself by bowing down before David. It's hard to be mad at somebody who is coming and approaches you in a humble fashion. We're told that kind answer turns away wrath. And sometimes the kind answer is seen in our actions. It's seen in how we present ourselves. She comes in in humility and bows herself down. In verse 24, she takes responsibility for her husband's actions. Let this iniquity be upon me, she says. Now, Abigail didn't do this because she really believed that she was guilty. But she put herself in the place of punishment because she knew David would punish her differently than her husband Nabal. It was wisdom on her part. In verse 27, Abigail brought David a present, but she was wise enough to say that it wasn't for David, but it was for his young men. And this was wise because had she presented it to David, she would have been suggesting that David could, you know, be bought off with money or some type of compensation. And it would have insulted David's dignity. She doesn't do that. In verse 28, Abigail plainly and straightforwardly asks for forgiveness. Please forgive the trespass of your maidservant. And sometimes, whether it's you or somebody in your family who has wronged someone, it's good, it's smart, it's wise to come and say, Please forgive us. I'm coming on behalf of him or her or our son or whatever. Please, please forgive us. In verse 28, despite David's present anger and agitation, which was clearly sin, Abigail speaks of David's character in high terms. She refers to him in a very respectful way. She calls him Lord and she references David's high calling that he fights the battles of the Lord and evil isn't found in him or shouldn't be found throughout his days. Basically what she was saying, David, you're too good and you're too important to waste your time on a man like my husband. That's what she's saying here. In verse 29, she reminded David of his destiny, that he was called to be the next king. And in verses 30 and 31, Abigail asked David not to do something that he would later regret. When God's promise was ultimately fulfilled, she said that you don't want to have this grief to you, that you have shed blood without cause. And this was perhaps the single best thing that Abigail said, that she wisely asked David to consider the outcome of his present course that he was on. To consider what a bad outcome this would be. That this could have ruined his reputation forever. And tainted him in the eyes of the people of Israel. As well as it could have destroyed his conscience and his relationship to the Lord. It's an important thing. It's a very important thing to do. To help people see beyond the immediate situation. To see where those acts of flesh are leading to. 
Sometimes, you know, we can become so blinded and it takes, you know, a loving friend, a loving spouse. It takes a loving brother or sister to come and say, you know what, do you really want to do? You really want to go down this road? Because, look, this is the ramifications it's going to have on your family, upon your wife, upon your kids, upon your brothers and sisters in the Lord. This is what it's going to do to your to your witness. You know, we live in a culture that places so much emphasis on the here and now. On the present, present gratification. And sometimes people just don't think about what their actions are going to do. And so we need to remind them. Now, sometimes the Lord allows you to see where you're headed. Not too long ago, I was sitting in a restaurant with a, a brother and we were talking, and I had to confront him about some issues of carnality in his life. And right about that time as we were talking, in walks another guy that we knew but haven't seen for a long, long time. He doesn't go to this fellowship. And, and, and he came and sat down and started talking with us. And, and you could just tell that something wasn't right. Different things that he had done to his appearance that, you know, it's like this guy's going through, you know, midlife crisis or something, you know, type of a thing. And then he starts talking and he starts using profanity. And we're just like, you know, I mean, this guy, he calls himself a brother and, you know, this type of thing. And it's like just, you know, coming out of his mouth, just like, like, like a normal type of thing. And as we walk out, this guy that I was having to confront, he said, is that where I'm headed? And I said, yep. <laughs> I said, that was a divine appointment for you to see, you know, <laughs> that if you don't change, you're going to be just like him. You know, you're going to be the guy, you know, doing those type of things. So she asked David here to let the Lord settle this matter instead of taking vengeance into his own hands. And in verse 29, she reminds David of God's care over him when she says, The life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God. And this was a beautiful description of David's relationship with God. And she uses this wonderful term of speech to say, David, you are like a bundle that the Lord holds closely and securely to himself. And your enemies are like rocks that the Lord is going to sling away. And so she was challenging David to act like someone who was close to the Lord and who the Lord was close to. So Abigail appeals to David, and we can really learn from this in a glorious fashion. In a great manner because it lifted him up instead of beating him down. David was clearly in the wrong and Abigail wanted to guide him into the right. But she doesn't do it by being negative. By emphasizing to David how wrong and angry and how stupid he was being. But instead, Abigail emphasized David's glorious calling. She spoke to him and reminded him of his destiny. She reminded him of the integrity that he held up to that point in his life. And she simply asked him to consider if your present course of action was to be consistent with who you are and the destiny and the calling to which you have been called to. And basically what she was saying is, David, is this what you've been called for? Is this what you want to be remembered by? And that is a great way. To approach people, brothers and sisters in the Lord, who are getting in the flesh. It's to kindly and lovingly seek to build them up, to to speak of their their character and their destiny and the things that, that you admire about them. And say, now look, here's where you're going. Is this how you want to be remembered? 
Is this what God has saved you for? Is this what God has called you to? Well, here we see in Act 5 the result of her response to David. Verse 32. Notice. Then David said to Abigail, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. And blessed is your advice, and blessed are you, because you have kept me this day from coming to bloodshed and from avenging myself with my own hand. For indeed, as the Lord God of Israel lives, who has kept me back from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, surely by morning light no males would have been left to Nabal. So David received from her hand what she had brought him and said to her, Go up in peace to your house and see, I have heeded your voice and respected your person. David thanks God for her appeal. And he receives her advice. He knew that God spoke to him through Abigail. He says in verse 32, it was God that sent you to me. And here we see God's grace in David's life. Samuel is gone. Jonathan is unavailable. And God sends Abigail. When those two guys are not available and one is out of the picture, he's gone, he's dead, he's died. God sends this woman, Abigail, to come and steer David in the right direction. And God is so good to send messengers into our lives if we would simply listen to them. If we would simply receive from them. And David shows that he was a godly man because he listened to this woman's godly counsel. David knew the blessing of being forgiven of sin. But here David gets to experience the blessing of being kept from sin. And there's a difference. Charles Spurgeon had this to say, we would need to seek forgiveness of our sin less often if we would seek the Lord more diligently to be kept from sin to begin with. There is no way of keeping out of the fire of sin except by having the fire of grace blazing within the spirit. We must fight fire with fire. And here, the grace of God sends this woman to come to help David, to confront David so that he can be kept from sin. So he doesn't have to go back later and say, God, what have I done? I destroyed this man's life. I put myself on the same plane as Saul when he killed the priests and their families. David didn't have to do that. He's being taught a good lesson here, too. That our hurt feelings, listen close, never, never, never justify disobedience. When our feelings get hurt, sometimes we feel that we can justify sin. But that is never the case. Two wrongs don't make a right. Never have, never will. And so David gets a chance to learn this lesson. He's humbled here as she comes to him. And in Psalm 25, verse 9, we're told, The humble he guides in justice, and the humble the Lord teaches in his way. We're told in Proverbs chapter 11, When pride comes, then comes shame, but with the humble is wisdom. And in Proverbs 29, A man's pride will bring him low, but the humble in spirit will retain honor. David is humbled because he listened to this woman. He didn't resist her counsel. And because of that, David will be honored instead of shamed. In the latter part of the chapter, we see Act 6, the judgment of a righteous God. Verse 36, now Abigail went to Nabal and there he was holding a feast in his house. 
like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. And therefore she told him nothing, little or much, until morning light. And so it was in the morning when the wine had gone from Nabal, he was sober. And his wife had told him these things, that his heart died within him, and he became like a stone. Basically, he had a stroke. And then it happened after about ten days that the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. Nabal lives up to his name. His name means fool, and this is how he acts. His life is in imminent danger. His wife knows it. His servants know it. But he just ignores it. He throws a party. He's eating. He's drinking. He's getting drunk. He's just partying and feasting. He doesn't have a care in the world. And Nabal is a picture of a sinner who goes on rejecting God without any fear or or recognition of God's coming judgment. And just as certain as it was that David would have killed Nabal, so it's certain that God will judge the sinner who continues to reject him. He gives chance after chance after chance and opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. He comes and he knocks on the door of that person's heart. He convicts them of their sin. He shows them their wrong and their error. But as that person continues to harden their heart, Their heart gets harder and harder and harder against the Lord. And so finally the Lord says in his word that, hey, I won't strive with man forever. And he says, you want to be hard towards me? Then be hard. And like Nabal, that man, that woman, that person's heart becomes like a stone. And all that is left is for them to face the judgment of God. Jesus might have had Nabal in mind when he taught the parable of the rich fool in Luke chapter 12. It's the story of a man who was a farmer and he had a great, great harvest. So much so that he had to tear down his old barn to build a bigger one so that he could hold everything that had come in. And then that after he harvested everything and everything was in his barn, he sat back and he said to himself, I'm going to eat, drink, soul, eat, drink and be merry. You've got it made. But that night the Lord came and appeared to that man and he said to him this. He said, you fool. This night your soul is required of you and you are not rich toward God. Are you rich toward God this morning? It was Benjamin Franklin who rightly said, if your riches are yours, then why don't you take them with you when you enter the other world? You you never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul because you can't take it with you. There's no U-Hauls going. There's no storage units in heaven. But you become rich by what you do for the Lord here. You become rich in God by your relationship with God here. Someone wrote this poem. I counted my dollars while God counted crosses. I counted gains while he counted losses. I counted my worth by the things gained in a store, but he sized me up by the scars that I bore. I coveted honors and sought for degrees. He wept as he counted the hours on my knees. I never knew till one day by a grave how vain are the things that we spend life to save. I did not know till a friend went above that the richest is he who is rich in God's love. The person who is the richest is the one who has received the love of God and was walking in the love of God and is responding in everything that he does in his life. All his priorities, what he does with the things that he has, it's all a response to the love that God has already showed 
to him in his life. Money will buy a bed, but not sleep. It will buy books, but not brains. Food, but not appetite. Finery, but not beauty. A house, but not a home. Medicine, but not health. Luxuries, but not culture. Amusements, but not happiness. Religion, but not salvation. A passport to everywhere, but to heaven. That's the mistake that Nabal made. I pray that it's not a mistake that anyone else here in this room would make today. We learn from this chapter that when conflicts arise, we need to be wise. To resist the temptation to respond in the flesh, but to pray and ask God for perspective. We learn to take each conflict as it comes, to handle it separately, never leaning or looking back on past situations. And third, whenever you realize that there's nothing that you can do, the answer is to wait and to trust, to restrain yourself from hasty responses. David, by the grace of God, was saved from doing a very evil and dumb thing. He heeded the counsel. May we heed God's word to our hearts this day. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for stories like this that testify to us of the greed, of the pride, of the selfishness, the stubbornness that can be so rampant in our own hearts. Lord, we thank you, God, that you send messengers to give us wake-up calls. That you've given us your spirit to convict us. To set us on the right path. Lord, may we heed the voice of your spirit. May we heed the voice of your word. And Lord, I pray for anybody here today who has been hardening their heart towards you. Lord, I pray that their minds and hearts would be aroused today by seeing the end of Nabal, another rich fool. And Lord, I pray that they wouldn't play the fool by not getting their hearts right with you today. Bless your word to our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.